My name is Kenan Vaughn. If I don't know you, uh, I'm sure I'm glad to be with you this morning in worship, corporate worship. I know many are joining in live stream, so welcome to those um, who are at home uh, following along as well. Miss you and miss being together. Uh, we do have a Discover Harvest coming up uh, August 1st, Saturday morning uh, here. And uh, if you've been visiting for any amount of time and that's of interest, uh, we'd love to have you uh, that morning, 8 to 12, in our fellowship hall. We'd love to get to know you more then. I... Um, telling you what, this text is a great text. When I was uh, uh, in Soup Campbell's discipleship group, I've talked about anybody that's been through Discover Harvest has heard me tell my story, and Soup has been and continues to be a, a, uh, just a massive uh, influence on me and my spiritual growth. He's discipled me, um, so he's a, a spiritual father to me, so to say. I remember one Tuesday morning, we were studying the book of Ephesians early in the morning. We kind of finished up studying uh, this particular passage about 7 a.m., and a guy, an older gentleman in the faith, a retired pastor, an active missionary who had been discipling soup for many years, named Herb Hodges. We called him Brother Herb. Um, he came over, as he would often do around breakfast time on Tuesdays, and we would just pick his brain on things. And so that evening, or sorry, that morning, when uh, he arrived, he said, what are y'all studying? Well, we said Ephesians 1. He said, well, part of Ephesians 1. I said, uh, 15 through 23. He said, oh, he said, the greatest prayer that you could ever pray for anyone lost, for any friend of yours, for any young infant Christian, for your spouse, for your kid, for yourself. So, pretty significant prayer this morning. I said, really? He said, oh, he said, Kenan, that is the prayer of illumination. And you're gonna see it this morning, and I would echo, it's been fun being in it all week, studying it, I would echo Brother Herb's sentiments. I don't know that you could find a more important prayer to pray for yourself, for me to be praying over you as your pastor, for you to be praying over those you're pouring into, over those you know that don't know the Lord. This is an unbelievably significant prayer that Paul prays for the church of Ephesus that we want to uncover the gold in this morning. So if y'all would stand to your feet for the reading of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, the very words of God given through the Apostle Paul as he prayed for the church of Ephesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God for the people of God. And the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. And so, Father, as we come to this text, I pray that you would um, just unveil it to us. Just pull back the covers that we might see with a mind of wisdom and revelation the truth of this text and that it wouldn't be a one-time exercise this morning, that it would be and become just the pattern of our life, a living, breathing, 
transformational relationship with you, the living God of the universe. Thank you for drawing us to you through the veil of the blood of Christ that now we might not merely know about you but know you. And I pray that as I teach this text this morning, you, Lord Jesus, would be exalted, that you would increase, you must, and that I must in the same fashion decrease. And so I pray that it would be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the text starts in uh, verse 15 with, for this reason. And so clearly we need to do some backtracking before we can go forward. For what reason? For this reason really refers back to uh, the previous 11 verses, verses 3 through 14, uh, which I thought about just reading all of them, but I know myself and would end up preaching that sermon and not this sermon. And so let me just give you just kind of the quick highlight, hope you catch what's happening in a magnificent passage, one of the most magnificent to me in all of Scripture. It's just a couple really long run-on sentences And we see the work of God in our redemption. We see it Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see in verse 4 and 5, even as he, the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Is that not mind-boggling? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Incredible to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now verse seven, the work of the son. In him, that's the beloved, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. The work of the father in choosing us, predestining us, adopting us as sons, the work of the beloved son in redeeming us by his blood. And then look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You can't get much better than Ephesians 1, 3 through 11. It tells the story of our salvation. It tells of a God who has rescued us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God and his mercy made us alive with Christ. Amen? I mean, it is a a great 11 verses, it's the gospel. It's what's true of our redemption, our salvation. Anyone that's a new creation of Christ knows this and you say in your spirit, amen, praise God. He chose me, he called me, he predestined me, he adopted me, he redeemed me, he sealed me. Amen, praise God. Now Paul says, for this reason. Now it's interesting what Paul's gonna do. For this reason, that God has redeemed you, that he has saved you. And, and I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Now that's important. Your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for all the saints is evidence of your salvation. Your faith, of course, is a prerequisite and an evidence of your salvation. But the true proof in the pudding, anyone can say they believe. How do we know it's not a superficial profession of faith? How do we know it's a sincere confession? How do we know it's a saving faith? Well, Jesus said, here's how... The world will know that you're mine, that you're my disciples, if you love one another. I'm gonna change your mind, I'm gonna change your heart, I'm gonna change your beliefs, I'm gonna change your affections. The true test of the saint is not merely an adherence to a set of beliefs, it's a life of love. He can't help but love God and love saints, love each other, and love his neighbor. And God's continually quickening him towards that purpose. That's the fruit That's the proof, that's the work, so to say, that James speaks of, of someone's saving faith. 
that faith works itself out in love. So Paul's saying, here's the deal. Here's the gospel. The Father calls, the Son redeems, the Spirit seals. And here's what I've heard of you. You've got a faith in the Lord Jesus. Is it sincere? And you've got a love for all the saints. So Paul is saying, for this reason, because I know the beauty of the gospel, and I know it's taken effect upon your heart. I know that you're saved. Now, you could say, for this reason what? Rejoice and go about our way? What do we do in light of the fact that he knows this little house church in Ephesus filled with some men and women who have believed on the Lord Jesus? Their lives are being transformed. The evidence of their faith is their love for one another. The gospel has truly grabbed hold of them. It's truly made them into a new creation. They're truly converted. And so what does Paul do? He goes to his knees and he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He starts there. Remembering you in my prayers, I praise God for saving you, that the sufficiency of his blood shed on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for your son is enough, it is finished. You're a brother, you're a sister, it is done, I praise God. But he keeps going, and he's gonna pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and he's gonna ask that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's gonna to continue to pray ultimately for their growth and for their maturity. Um, Paul, he does this in four different epistles, when he knows that, when he hears of your faith, when he knows that it's sincere, the evidence and the fruit of your love, what he always does is then asks God to grow you up in the faith, to allow you to step into the privilege of adoption as a son and to know him in a living relationship as his father. Paul does not believe that one should experience as a believer terminal infancy in the faith. He thinks that would be the most tragic thing imaginable. So if he hears of your sincere and saving faith, immediately he's on his knees asking God to move you on in the gospel, to move you forward towards adulthood, towards maturity. Prof. Hendricks used to say we ought to dress people in church according to their spiritual maturity. That would solve a lot of our problems. But before it would solve them, it would reveal them. Right? You'd see a lot of adults in diapers because there's a prolonged spiritual infancy. Paul is immediately going to work on his knees. Thank God that he saved you. Now let's get to work. There is a journey ahead. There is a destiny for you. There's a hope. There's an inheritance. There's a power. There's a calling. You've got to step. God and he's going right to his knees, that they may step into that hope of their calling, into the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, into the surpassing greatness of his power. He won't be content with merely their saving, merely their being saved, merely their salvation. That's the beginning of this great journey that God has called them to in Christ. James Montgomery Boyce, great pastor, 10th Street Pres in Philadelphia, uh, he was asked at the end of his ministry career, uh, what's the greatest need in the church today? Great commentator, I've got several of his commentaries on my shelf. And he said, in my earlier years of ministry, I would have said evangelism. In my middle years, I would have said the guarding of sound doctrine. But here in my late years, I would say this, the greatest need is that the Christian know God. You might be like, well, that's pretty simple, right? Well, he's saying, he's noticing in the state of the church, there's far too many who know the stories. There's far too many who know the theology who can espouse to right doctrine. And yet there's no intimacy in a living, breathing, dynamic relationship with God. He said, what we need is Christians that know him, 
This is what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. It's not enough to be known, to be saved, to know about, to know the story, to have your heart squeezed and to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and that be it and put it on the shelf and go back to our business and go back to our uh, vocational calling as the chief writer in our life or, or go back to family or whatever it may be noble or ignoble, that anything else would ever become more central or more beautiful in our lives than the gospel. That from the moment you're saved, that is the beginning of this incredible journey. I had the chance to marry a sweet little couple last night. Gus, Walt, and uh, Carly Tuliatis, if you know them, I mean, they just gush all over the place with love for one another. They look so young, too. I, I was sitting there marrying them thinking, are these, what are they, like 16, 17? Like, this is, like, crazy. They, they're just these young bubbly, it's almost obnoxious their infatuation with one another, okay? But it's more cute. All right, they just, I mean, they are so in love. And I had the thought, of course, I've been in this text this week, I had the thought of how they're professing their love for one another publicly, making a covenant before God, and you know what I was thinking? And they barely know one another. <laughs> so I was thinking, it's great, it's beautiful, <laughs> they're drawn to each other, they're making this commitment, they're going to get to know one another, but right now, They've seen enough to know they want to know more, and that's good. And marriage is a good and godly calling. It's a sanctifying thing that God uses to display his love for the church. But they don't really know each other, not yet. I've been married coming up on 15 years. Some of you guys have been married 50 and would say, ha, same to you. Well, let, let me just say this. I, I know that you're right, and here's how I know it. Um, I got, we, Kath and I got to get away first time in the pandemic. We got about 30 hours away. It was extremely healing. <laughs> Um, it was great. It was wonderful. And uh, we went to pick up a son of mine who had the chance to go to the very same camp that I, when I was his age, got saved at, where I received Christ. And so he went to this camp. And by the way, I served 15, 20 years ago, both 20 as a counselor and 15 as a guy that trained the counselors. I served at this camp. And when I was dating Catherine, and we were in that place of just crazy, head over heels, falling in love for one another, Somewhere in the midst of those uh, months of dating, she had come to visit me when I had an off uh, uh, time working at this camp, and I had taken her to this place to get ice cream. And this little sweet shop, we got ice cream. We kind of looked over this, uh, you know, this nice view, this overlook, and we ate the ice cream, and she was taking a bite, and I made a joke, and a piece of the ice cream fell down her shirt, and we, had, we didn't know what to do, and it was a great memory for us. And, uh, and so here we are, by the way, we're just kind of raging in love. A few months later, we'd be married. I knew of Catherine that she had these strong convictions in her faith, that she had a childlike faith in the Lord. I loved it. I knew that she was sweet and empathetic and patient, things that I am not. I knew that she, was in, that she had a southern accent that just melted my heart, still does today. I knew that she was beautiful. I knew that she had character. I knew that she was a noble woman. I knew that she desired with her life to serve. I knew so many things that I was attracted to and loving in her and wanted to be with her. And so I married her. Somehow, by the grace of God, she said yes, and I married her. Well, we went back Thursday night to that little ice cream shop. And we went there, took her there, and this lady was serving the ice cream. Have you ever been here before? I said, matter of fact, I have. I said, I took this woman here 15 years ago. And I uh, was trying to help her along into uh, falling in love with me as I was in, with her. And she ended up saying yes, so I, I owe this place. There's some magic in this ice cream. I said, and we're back. And she goes, oh my goodness, that's incredible. 15 years, and you know, we sat on the same overlook, same view, eating the ice cream, this time stayed on the cone. I tried my best, but it stayed on the cone. And, um, 
And I, you know what I thought? Of course, being this text, I thought, you know, sweetheart, 15 years ago, I thought I knew you. But I really didn't. I mean, I did not. I knew some things that I really liked. I was, but, God, babe, today, man, we don't even have to talk right now. I know what you're thinking. This is generally worried about the kids, but I know what you're thinking. I know, where, I know your fears and insecurities. I know your hopes and delights. Like, I can complete her sentences. I, I just know her inside and out, the way she thinks, the way she feels, the way she processes it. I mean, guys, to, to, tell, to try to explain the difference in where we were when we said I do in today is almost immeasurable. I could never imagine. I can't even imagine if we make it a 50. Can't even imagine. But there's this obvious thing that when you say I do at the altar, it's meant to be the beginning of a journey of the knowledge and deepening of intimacy and the oneness of marriage. Paul's writing to these young Ephesian church and saying, you've got union with Christ. There's a new covenant and you've entered it. Praise be to God. Now don't stop. You now need to come into the knowledge of him, not merely the ascertaining of information and data about his life, but the wisdom and revelation of revealed experiential transformation in relationship with him. You've got to grow in the grace of the gospel. I want you to go forth in knowing him to maturity in Christ. A.W. Tozier said this, great quote, love Tozier, much deeper thinker than me, got to read him slowly, but he said this, the greatest problem in our Protestant theology that has become a misrepresentation of it is this, because we found God, we no longer need to seek him. So there's this idea, you saved, yes, all right back about your business. Deep breath. We're all good. Generally, all of our evangelistic efforts, so many of our missions, we got to get people to come to the saving knowledge. Of course, we can't do that, but we want to put it out there, and we want to give them the truth and love them that they may see Christ and come to him. And Paul's going, hey, that's the beginning. A.W. Tozer's saying, that's the problem that we would think that's an end, that I'm saved, and now I no longer need to seek him. Think about Paul in Philippians writing, oh, that I might know Christ. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, and so somehow to become like him in his death and attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He'd say a chapter later, forgetting what is behind and pressing on towards what's ahead, I lay hold of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he laid hold of me. Paul knows Christ, and yet he's always pressing on. I love David. Most of the Psalms, he says, my heart faints for thee, my soul thirsts for thee. This is David who has a heart after the Lord, who knows the Lord. He says, I will seek thee early in the morning. I I will dwell in your tabernacle forever, beholding your beauty forever and ever. David knows him, seeks for more. Paul knows him, seeking for more. This is meant to be the Christian life. Ephesians, I've heard of your Faith in Christ, your love for the saints, it's sincere. Praise God. I'm going to my knees now that you don't remain in the infancy of your faith, that you grow in the depths of the knowledge of the beauty of the gospel, and it captivates and controls your life. Now watch how he plays that out. He says, here's what I want, that the God of, the Lord Je- God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Now again, knowledge is data. Knowledge is information. You can take it in. You got, I, I was the worst at this in high school and college. I would cram. I was a crammer. I would cram for tests. I would 
generally not be as focused as I should during the course of the semester. And when it was test time, I would take the chapters that I had not diligently read, the discussions that I had mostly missed, the notes that I had chicken scratched out, and I would pull all-nighters. Man, I'd just cram it in, just get it all in. And I'd literally feel so full, I felt like my, my, my head was about to pop. And I'd go in there, and they put the paper down, and I'd just, whoo, I'd just like dump it all out, write as fast as I can, making notes in the all, trying to get it all out before I forget it. And I'd turn the thing in, and it was lost, <laughs> which is not a great way to learn. That was merely knowledge that came in, that went out. Wisdom is very different than this. Wisdom is the applied, the application of knowledge. It is taking the truth of God's word and interacting with it. It's the application of this as the infinite truth of a living God to uh, Detour from his word would be to live the life of a fool. To submit to it, to yield my life to it, would be to live a life of wisdom. Wisdom is obedience. It's a yielding to the spirit in the word. It's engaging in a way that we apply knowledge to our lives. Paul says, here's what I want for you. Here's how I want you to grow. I want you to have wisdom. I want you to apply the word of God in your life. And I want you to have revelation. I want you to have this interaction where you come to God's word, not as one looking for knowledge, not as one wanting data, not as one wanting to check off the 365 day a year quiet time schedule you're on, but one who's looking for, for life, looking for wisdom, looking for that which you can apply to honor, the God, to honor God, become more like him and share him. There's wisdom, and here's what God will do. He'll meet you with revelation. I do this because he'll pull back the covers, and you'll meet him, you'll encounter him in his word. Uh, that's, what a, that's what a quiet time or a, a time of, uh, in his word and in meditation and prayer is meant to be. It's, it's not meant to be something we check our box because we're supposed to get that done as Christians. It's a time where we're meeting with God. We're literally reading the word to know his heart. Uh, there's times when you're in the word where the spirit of God just, just reveals something to you. I don't know how else to say it, where you just go, that, that was... Like, that was what God wanted me to hear. That was what he had for me. That is so on time in my life. That just gave me new perspective on what I've been stressed out about. That gave me clarity on what I'm supposed to do in this situation in my life. That gave me hope to make it through a hard time. Like, God just met me in his word with a needed truth, and now I can live yielded to it in application of it, a life that's wisely lived unto God. Uh, this happened to me last night in a, in a beautiful way. It was about midnight. And I sent a text out to a buddy of mine, and I said, hey, I got a lot of thoughts on this sermon, and uh, there's just so much, and, it's, it, and I, I only have so much time, and I just, it's kind of jumbled up. Can you pray that God will give me wisdom and clarity? And then it was time to go to bed. So I went to bed, and this morning about uh, 6.45, I get a text, and uh, my buddy said, hey, got your text as I went to bed last night, and uh, you won't believe this. This morning I got up and he said, I'm doing a, uh, a devotional study and I open up to this morning's study and it says, a prayer for wisdom and clarity. And he goes, so bro, I thought I should probably send you this. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I, got, I just, I looked at my text, would you please pray for me a prayer of wisdom and clarity? And I'm on my spirit to send that to this brother who reads the next morning a spirit of a prayer of wisdom and clarity and send it to me. And man, I read that as the word of God given for me. God just meets you there. There's just a, 
There's a spirit of wisdom and revelation. There's this dynamism in your relationship with God where he's leading you and you're following him. And look, we talk about discipleship a lot, meeting with godly men, godly women who know God uh, in a more intimate way than you who bring you along. But at the end of the day, you got the Holy Spirit, the, guide, uh, the, the ultimate guide, your counselor, your discipler, helping you along in your relationship with God, to know him and have intimacy with him. You know, in those same days where I was a counselor at that camp and Catherine and I were dating in that same summer, uh, she, we would write letters to each other. Letters were the only appropriate means of, of uh, communication uh, while working at the camp. And so she would write me letters. Man, when I got a letter, I probably got three or four. When I got a letter from her, oh, that was a big deal. That was a big day. And I would rush the kids into their bunks because I had to get everybody quiet before I could finally get over here and read this letter. And I'd get them hushed up, pass out their meal, and then I'd settle in and I would read these letters. And I mean, it was so sweet to just open it up and take my time. And I mean, I would read this thing. It was not a cursory reading so I could get back to the schedule. It was tune everything else out and be one with this woman through her writing. And I would read that letter again and again. And the next day I wouldn't have a letter, so I'd just go back and I'd read that one again. I'd keep reading that letter every single day until a new letter came. And these letters were part of my heart. And through these letters, I was getting to know her heart. I wasn't just looking for the information. What's the necessary information here? What's the pieces I need to make sure I know? There was no logistics in these letters. There was feelings and emotions and thoughts and questions. And I, it was a dialogue there. It was meaningful. It was meaty. It was down below the surface. And I was reading to try to understand the heart of the author. And here's my fear for so much of us in the church, that we don't go to our Bible like that. That we go to our Bible when we go, with a, only a certain amount of time, distractions, things we got to get to, things we got to get done. We get our reading done as if it's a chore we cross off. We don't come to it as this love letter from God to his children, whom we are one of by virtue of the blood of Christ and our adoption from the heavenly realms made reality in our salvation. And we come as a child reading the letter to understand the heart of the Father You know, you give a non-believer the word of God, and of course God could use that to absolutely illumine and awaken him to truth. But if a guy is stone cold in his heart to God and to the things of God, if he's a, a pagan, the Bible, he doesn't want to read the Bible. He goes, what, what is this? Uh, this makes no sense to me. I don't understand, I don't believe. It's just, it's nothingness. In the same way, if I gave one of those letters to my co-counselors, hey, check this out. It's the greatest thing I've ever read. He'd go, oh, man, oh, I kind of want to see, oh, man, this is worth, no, don't, I don't want to read that. Uh, in the same way a non-believer comes to the scriptures, there's no illumination, there's no spiritual understanding of spiritual things. There's a coldness, it's, it's, uh, it's someone uh, reading the mail of a child of God who's not one. There's nothing there for them. But to us, Paul says, Ephesians, I want you, when it comes to the knowledge of God, to hunger, to seek, to savor, and that he would give you wisdom and revelation. That there'd be a dynamism towards growth It would be the delight of your life and the delight of your heart. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit trail, uh, knowing my time is short, but in 1 Corinthians 2, you can maybe make a note of this, uh, the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and the beginning of 3, Paul tells us there's pretty much four kinds of people when it comes to uh, uh, hearing God's word. Um, in 
First Corinthians chapter two, verse 14, there's the natural person, this is the lost person, the man uh, who's, who's a slave to his own natural carnal understanding, a slave to a flesh, a fleshly man, a carnal man, a natural man. He does not accept the things of God, of the spirit of God is what it says. And then he says there's a spiritual person who can judge and ascertain all things. So you got the, 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 the man who can't understand the things of God. They're nonsense, they're foolishness. Then you got the spiritual man who's alive unto Christ, who can't get enough, who would sit here and hear me uh, uh, pick apart and untangle the truths of God's word and devours it and will sit there and take notes and wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. As long as I'll talk, you want more because you're awake. There's the spiritual things hitting the spiritual mind of the spiritual man and there's illumination and growth. And then he says this at the beginning of chapter three. Um, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. You weren't there two years ago when I was with you. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Now, is there any condemnation in that? No. You were a brand new believer, so I couldn't address you with these deep spiritual concepts. I could just give you milk. No condemnation. That's exactly what was appropriate for you. You need milk. I've got kids in my, at our table ranging from two to 12. I get on to the older ones. If they don't, Catherine works hard on a meal. It's got some green in there. It's got some yellow in there. It's got some good vitamins and nutrients, and it's got some meat, and it's got some protein. It's got some, and, and I say, hey, boys, I hope you like it. But whether you like it or not really ain't the issue. You're taking it down. All right, everybody's going to clean their plate. And the older boys, if they don't, I reason. I get on to them. My tone changes. Son, you need to deal with that. You're going to honor your mom, you're going to honor your temple, you're going to take it down. Now the two-year-old, I don't talk to him like that. He'd have no understanding. It's not really appropriate. He's got grace. And they know they can't say, well, what about Mac? He's over there just throwing, throwing food on the floor. He's feeding the dog. And you know what? That kind of meets where he is in life. That's his understanding. And we, and we chop things up real small. We give him what he, we can handle for his own nourishment. We're spoon feeding him. But you guys aren't where he is anymore. And I hope you're not making the argument that you ought to be where he is versus him ought to be where you are. We're growing him to get where you are, not so that you can act like he acts. And so Paul changes his tone right here. He said, I fed you with milk two years ago. But his tone changes. He said, and even now, you are not ready and now, he, I mean, if you could hear Paul right here, I think he's angry. You're still of the flesh. The word in Greek there means you're not a baby anymore, but you're imitating a baby. Here you are two years later. There's been no growth. There's been no wisdom, no revelation, no maturity. There's no intimacy. There's no light. You're still spiritually in diapers. And why? You're imitating a babe when you should be down the road. And he talks about why. Jealousy and strife and fleshly behavior and distraction and worldliness. This is why Paul's so fervently praying for the Ephesians. Don't let it be so of you. Saved, praise God. Now let's go forward. Let's grow to maturity. And here's how. He says, wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's that word, illumination. Being woke is the way to say it in today's culture. Being woke to the depth and beauty of the gospel. We need gospel wokeness in the church. All right, well, seriously, I'm telling you, we have this pervasive Christian culture that the question is, are you saved? And the idea is, are you a Christian based on your morals and your beliefs? And, and Tozier and Boyce and Paul are going to war with that. They're saying, are you in a dynamic, growing, intimacy-building relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Are you woke to the gospel? That you may know, here's why Paul wants you to be alive. And here's why Brother Herb said this is the most important thing you can ever pray for anybody. That you may know, if your heart's illumined, if you're awake, if you're enlightened, if wisdom and revelation being revealed to you through you, here's what you got. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards you. The hope to which he has called you. Let me finish just giving you a little bit on these three things. The hope to which he has called you. Your hope is something future. It's what is ultimate in Christ. What have we been given in Christ? He rose from the dead. By the way, he's raised me from the dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Now I'm awake and alive to a whole new reality I never knew existed. I can't see my Bible the same. I can't see the cross the same. I can't see my sin the same. He has resurrected me. I, just as I've taken part in his death to sin, I've taken part and am taking part in his new life, Romans 6. It's happening. There's an assurance the Spirit of God is in me. He's promised, I've sealed you. Just as sure as he rose from the dead, he will come again. And there's a hope of my calling that what it will end up doing is he will continue to sanctify me even in my stubbornness. He'll continue to conform me into the image of his son as he's promised until one day my time on this earth will be complete. He'll interrupt it in his coming or I'll close my eyes for the last time and I will go to him. John 14, just as I said, there's many rooms in the Father's house and I go away to prepare a place for you. I will come back and get you. Do not be troubled. The hope of my calling will land in the very presence of Christ with mortal wounds on his hands for my iniquities. And from there we will be at the throne room of heaven in a place called the New Jerusalem where I am to inhabit it because of one reason. Satan can hurl his accusations at me but the book of life's open and my name's written in blood because Christ saved me. And the hope of my calling is in that day the accusations will fall nil because Jesus Christ will intervene on my behalf and say, no, no, no. All that's true, but what's truer still is he is mine and I am his. And the eternal lake of sulfur will not be where I am thrown in that day. I will be ushered in to a new Jerusalem, the very presence of Christ. No, that's the hope of my calling. So is it like a maybe, maybe so? No, it's an assurance. There's, there's nothing else I'm more assured of than Christ will come, establish his kingdom, the new Jerusalem, and reign forever and ever. There's no more assurance that I have. And the proof was not merely his death, it was his resurrecting from the grave. So as he rose, 1 Corinthians 15, as the first fruits from the grave, I too will receive a glorified body to enjoy eternity with him in his presence and the fellowship of all the saints. It's an assurance, it's the hope of my calling, and there's meant to be an anticipation I live with that changes my reality today because I can't wait for that day, and so I live for it. The, the greatest thought I could have of worldly anticipation was to be a kid on Christmas Eve. And I've got a bunch of them, and so I see it in them, but I remember it in me. Can you go back there with me just for a minute? Can you remember being a kid on Christmas Eve? I don't know what your family traditions was, but I mean, was that not the best? It was I, just, just, the sheer anticipation of the good things that were coming. I don't care what else was problematic in your life. There's nothing like, I mean, the, the butterflies in your stomach. I, we would go to my grandmother's house, we would eat. Normally I like to play games with my granddad and stay there and linger and try to have a late bedtime, but not Christmas Eve. We would come home, I'd, man, I'd be cleaning dishes, I'd try to get us out of there, we gotta get home, we gotta get to bed. I just wanted the night to pass. Because I knew when the darkness 
faded away and gave way to the light of a new dawn, there would be presence from the Father. There would be fellowship with the, the beloved. There would be a meal we share together and everything would be joyous. And so I went to bed with this expectation and anticipation of something I knew was coming and couldn't quite even get it and just couldn't wait to come, come fast enough. That is the hope of our calling. We're here, the prince of this world, there's an ever-present darkness. We're pushing forth the light into the darkness, but we're anticipating when finally the night is gone. We're anticipating when the new dawn arises and there's presence in the presence of the king and the beloved fellowship and the enjoyment of one another and the feast of the saints for all of eternity. Paul says, I want you to get a hold of this. I want you to live by way of a hope of your calling. I want it to be yours. And not merely the hope of your calling, he says, I want you to have the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. This is so beautiful. The hope of your calling is about what is ultimately yours in Christ. The riches of the inheritance, the inheritance is about who you are in Christ. The inheritance is something that is passed on. You don't earn it, it's earned by someone else, it's given to you by legal right, by virtue of blood relationship. Paul started in Ephesians 1, he said, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms given us in Christ Jesus, and we don't even begin to scratch the surface of understanding this that there's an inheritance that's ours in Christ by virtue of what he earned that's imputed to us by legal divine right because of the blood relationship that his blood covers us in our sin. We have an inheritance. We're God's inheritance and we have an inheritance and here's what it is. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is ours. And we, we haven't even started to catch up with that. Let me give you this illustration that was a father who loved collecting fine art from all over the world. His son, it was their hobby together. They did it together. He did it for 50 years. He did it with the son. They loved it. They had a house full. It was almost a museum of sorts of great pieces of art. His son ended up uh, drafted into war and was killed. And one of his buddies um, uh, drew a, a portrait, knew the dad loved art, painted a portrait of the son. It wasn't any famous piece. It was just meaningful to the dad because it was a portrait of the son. In fact, it was his most meaningful piece. He hung it above the fireplace. And uh, when the father finally passed away, there was an estate sale and, 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 and art collectors from all over the world gathered because of this man's renowned uh, collection of art. And the, the uh, auctioneer began the bidding and the first piece they wheeled out was the portrait of the son. And no one really cared. These collectors of fine art didn't really care because they didn't know the son. That piece wasn't very special to them. And it wasn't the Picasso or the Van Gogh or the, you know, uh, whatever, Remington. I mean, every, all, all the who's who that this guy had collected a piece of, they were there for the good stuff. And so no one bid. And the auctioneer said, is there anyone? And finally, a guy just to move it along said, $10. And the auctioneer said, $10, going once, going twice, sold. And they said, that concludes the estate sale today. And everybody said, what, what? No, 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 we've got all these fine pieces of art from all over the world. We've come from far away to bid on them and to purchase them. And he said, well, the father left it in his will expressly written that whoever gets the son gets it all. We have not even begun to wake up to what is ours in Christ Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is yours. You're my child. 
the inheritance of the entire eternal kingdom is bestowed to you. You're my heir, co-heir with Christ. And I'm telling you, the words of John 3.16 are going to look a lot different when we stand there at the throne and the books are opened. And the only thing between us and a, uh, a, an eternal separation and judgment is a lamb slain. And it's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Can you imagine in that moment? The only begotten son. That whosoever believes on him will never perish. You won't be thrown into forever judgment, but will have eternal, everlasting life. It's yes to Jesus, and you receive everything. Paul says, I want you to understand who you are. I want you to understand the riches of your glorious inheritance. It is yours as a saint. And finally, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. The hope of his calling is what's ultimately yours. The riches of your inheritance as the saints is who you are. And the immeasurable greatness of his power is what is given to you to accomplish his purposes today. You know what's so tragic for believers? That Paul says, let it never be so, Ephesus that you might remain a spiritual infant, never learn to delight in Christ. The tragedy of your life it will be a story of what could have been. You would have never had to depend in your weakness upon the surpassing greatness of the power of God to accomplish his purposes, which was your privilege as an adopted son or daughter of God on this earth. That you would somehow look at your life as survival and not the offensive pushing forth light into a kingdom of darkness that you would miss out. He goes on the last three verses saying Christ is the head of all. He's given as the head of the church. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's over everything. He's the fullness of everything and he has all authority in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. It's the great commission. All authority has been given him and he says go and make disciples. And there are Christians adhering to a set of beliefs pointing back to a testimony of getting saved that have never even shared the gospel. There are Christians who know nothing about making disciples. There are Christians who know nothing about inhabiting the kingdom of God on this earth as a foreshadowing of what's coming and pushing forth light into darkness intentionally, purposefully, passionately. And here's what most Christians say. Same thing the disciples said at the feeding of the 5,000 recorded in all four gospels. Hey, God, they're, uh, Jesus, they're hungry. There's a lot of, well, should we send them away? He said, you feed them. And they said, I'm, so, I'm sorry? There's thousands, 5,000 men, 20,000 people. We don't have anything. You feed them. What do you have? We got some fish, some loaves. We got nothing. Bring them to me. He blesses them. He breaks them, he multiplies them. And all of a sudden the disciples come alive. And all of a sudden they're learning, so wait a minute. We don't have what it takes, but the source of surpassing greatness of immeasurable power that we can never imagine is at work in us that we go minister to the people in need. We come back to the source of ins insurmountable power surpassing greatness of power, we receive what we need, he blesses us, he breaks us, he uses us, and we just keep going. And our life is now poured out in service, it's poured out in ministry. 
Now we know God. We delight in him, we walk with him. We live in the anticipation of the great Christmas morning. We have an insurpassable joy as an heir of God and co-heir of Christ, and we experience the surpassing greatness of his power as we dole out the ministry of the gospel. Boy said, our problem is Christians that don't know God. Tozer said, don't fall prey to a theology that says once you're saved, you don't need to seek him. That sweet little couple last night stood there at the altar in their sweet, loving, infatuated ignorance. And I said to Gus, I said, hey man, I said, here's the mistake most men make. They get right here and they think they just won. They stormed the castle, they claimed their beauty, and they did it. They, they busted through the tape. Man, I want to tell you something. This is not the end of your pursuit of Carly. It is just the beginning. I heard you love her. I heard it's sincere. I heard you're making a covenant. Good. Now I'm going to hit my knees so that you grow in the understanding of the intimacy of the oneness that this marriage brings you joy unfathomable and God glory. Harvest, I was convicted this week. I need to be praying this prayer over you, over our church, passionately and regularly, just as Paul did for Corinth, just as he did for Philippi, just as he did for Ephesus. We don't want to remain spiritual infants. God, I'm going to ask it now. Will you open the eyes of our hearts? Will you give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ? Would you make known to your people the hope of their calling, the riches of their glorious inheritance in the saints, and the unsurpassing, unsurpassing greatness of your power at work in them as they carry out your commission? Let them be illumined. Let them be awakened. Let them be enlightened to the bigness, the depth, the glory, the unimaginable beauty of Christ in the gospel. Let them be captivated. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.